Amen. God is our salvation, our rock and our fortress that we can cry out to. Let us now go to our God in prayer. Please be seated. The words of that particular song are an instruction to our hearts. What should we do when it feels like all we possess is grief and when it feels like all is lost? We should go to God, our rock and our salvation. Uh, Truthfully, I know that many of us probably don't do that whenever we feel grief and sorrow. So let us now pray to God and confess where we've fallen short in that. Let's pray. God, we confess before you that we have not always run to the rock that is higher than us. God, whenever we've possessed grief and strife and sorrow, we have at times instead ran to other things, to other so-called foundations and so-called rocks. So God, we ask that in your kindness, you would forgive us, that you would see the brokenness and the sinfulness of our hearts, and that you would forgive us for not coming to you and to you alone. God, we need you. We desperately need the salvation that you provide in times of trouble, in times of sorrow, and especially in the times of our sin. So God, help us as that psalm and as that song instructs us, help us to place our hope in God whenever we are faithless. God, help us to remember that we can come to you in faith because you are the faithful one. God, forgive us for whenever we have forgotten that. Help us this morning put our trust in God. May that be the heartbeat. May that be the resounding yes and amen from this church, that we trust the Lord God. God, we pray not just for ourselves, that that would be the resounding cry from our church, but we pray for other churches in this area, that their hope and cry would also be we trust in God. And specifically, Lord, we pray this morning for Connection Church in Sturgis. Father, we thank you for that church. Not only are they members of the local association of Southern Baptists that are here, but Father, we are thankful for them because they proclaim the same gospel. They preach the same Bible that we do. So Father, we pray for the men that open up the word of God at that church. Father, we specifically pray for their pastor, Matt Price. And we ask, God, that in your kindness, that you would give him the ability and the clarity to speak the gospel, to preach what is true out of your word this morning. And Father, we pray that in your kindness as well, that you might save those who might be at Connection Church Sturgis this morning and not know you. God, we pray for Matt that his ministry would be fruitful. We pray for him and his wife, seeing as that they've been in this role not even a couple of months. Father, we pray that you would continue to hold them fast as they transition into this role. And Father, we pray specifically for Matt that he would be a man above reproach and that he would preach your word in season and out of season. Father, thank you for Connection Church. Father, we not only pray for churches here, but we pray for churches all across the world. So this morning, we want to pray for the biblical churches in the country of India. Father, we recognize and we know that India is one of the most populated countries in all of the earth. It's on pace in 10 years even to be the most populated country in the whole world. God, with more and more people there, we know that the gospel need is great. 
So, Father, we pray this morning that you would raise up more workers, that you would raise up more pastors, more missionaries for the sake of the country of India. God, we pray that for the over two billion people that are there, that you would raise them up, that you would send forth your gospel in power and in truth for the sake of your name in that country. God, we know that India is 95% unreached. There are 95% of the people there that do not know you or have no access to the gospel. So God, we pray that through this church, through maybe even some of us, that you would raise some of us up so that we might see the need there in the country of India so that the gospel may go forth and that we may see biblical and healthy churches in that area so that they may take the word of God to others as well. God, we can't help but to think of people like the Sheikh people, the Sheikh people group in India with over 85 million people in that group. God, they have no understanding or access to the gospel. So God, raise people up for that end. God, if you in your kindness would do that through this local church, we pray that you would do that for the glory of your name and for the good of the people of India. God, we pray that you would be with the workers and pastors that are already there. Father, I know that this church has previously had some individuals in work there. And Father, we pray that you would send more. God, there is such a great need in that country. And we pray that you would save people in India through the work of pastors and missionaries already there. God, we now turn back to ourselves. We turn to your word specifically. Because it's not out of my own words. It's not out of anybody else's words here. It's out of your word that life is brought It's out of your word that salvation is wrought. So God, we pray that if there's somebody that does not know you this morning, that you would save them, that they would hear the gospel clearly, that they would know that there is a God that loves them and has orchestrated all things so that they may come into relationship with you. God, we pray for ourselves. We pray that you would bear fruit in our lives, that this word wouldn't be returned void God, you've promised in your word that it won't. So God, we pray that you would bear a fruit 30, 60, 100 fold in our lives. And God, we may be different because of that. God, please help us this morning to trust in you and to trust in your good and precious word. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So... I'm loving this book of Esther, and one of the things that, as I was preparing for the sermon this morning that I was thinking about was, have you guys ever seen something that you now can't unsee? Or maybe you've heard something like in a song, and somebody said, doesn't it sound like he's saying this, and now you can't unhear whatever that person said? Uh, For example, if you were to look at something like the FedEx logo, uh, the purple and orange letters on that, have you ever noticed how between the E and the X, it forms an arrow? Have you guys ever seen that? Anybody here? No? Okay. Uh, perhaps you guys have noticed how uh, the collar on the uh, woman from Wendy's, it actually spells out mom uh, in her collar. And one of the reasons that Wendy's did that was because they wanted to make um, a more welcoming environment and to create a positive mental image for those who might frequent Wendy's. Uh, perhaps maybe some of, uh, some of the older generation might understand this. Uh, on some vinyls back in the day, you could play them backwards and some bands would have some secret hidden messages. Maybe some of you were kept from those vinyls by your parents, who knows? Uh, but we, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? This method 
of having secret or hidden messages and images or even an audio like those vinyls, this messaging system is called subliminal messaging. It's a message that is supposed to pass below the normal limits of perception. They're essentially inaudible to the conscious mind, but audible to the unconscious, which I don't know how that works, um, but they're audible to this unconscious or deeper mind. The goal in all of this subliminal messaging is to persuade you as the consumer to unconsciously persuade you that if you were to ever need a burger, that you would think about Wendy and how she's so sweet because she reminds you of your mother and you go get a burger from Wendy's because of that. Basically, if you were ever to think about needing a product, they've already unconsciously influenced you so much that you can say, oh, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Wendy's or I'm going to go to FedEx to ship my uh, products. In many ways, the book of Esther, it functions in the same way. The author's aim in the recording of this book is to get you to see the hidden or subliminal message that's woven throughout the book. I don't think I'm going to be spoiling this book for anybody, but spoiler alert for everybody that's in here. God's name isn't mentioned once in this whole book, and I know we've talked about that already. But I do believe that the author is doing this on purpose because I think he wants us to see how providentially God works through events and individuals in his sovereign power to accomplish his plans and purposes. The author's goal is to help you see that God is behind everything, whether he writes out his name or not. While if you read this book, it seems so clear and it seems so obvious that the hidden message method is, is working, it's, truthfully, it's really frustrating as you try to prepare and preach a sermon. The author, he hides his intention so well that there are different and faithful interpretations about what characters' motives or about what their statements mean. Truthfully, I felt like I was so familiar with Esther 4. This is the hallmark passage of Esther. I felt like I was so familiar with it, and then I started reading five or six commentaries, and then all of a sudden I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to say or what I'm going to preach. Um, but I felt like I've, I've learned more within this book in this last week than I did in my five years of seminary that are getting ready to end here soon. So before we get in this message this morning, I'm going to plead with you, one, to have patience with me, but two, I want to plead with you to read this chapter and to look out for things and to understand some things that maybe you have never heard before. I want us to read this passage and I want us to hear this sermon with an open heart and an open mind. Perhaps you will learn something new this morning like I did this week. My ultimate hope is that through a fresh reading and a fresh understanding of what this passage is and what it means, creates a deeper affection in you for God, and hopefully as well a more faithful devotion to him. So with that said, let's read Esther 4. Esther 4, which you can find on page 412 in those blue pew Bibles, begins with this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. 
She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him, Hathak, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he, Hathak, might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is a tense passage, truthfully. It's, there's a lot of uh, tense emotions within it. But I want to get right into the main idea because this is the typical thing that I do. I think the thing that we're supposed to walk away with, the conclusion that we are supposed to have from this passage is this. Trusting in God and obedience to him is always rooted in the purpose of God's glory. Again, that main idea is this. Trusting in God and obedience to him is always rooted in the purpose of God's glory. So even though I just gave that main idea, and I know that's like totally typical of what Tanner does whenever he preaches a sermon, I'm actually going to be preaching this text a little bit differently than what I usually do, where I preach a section, talk about what the main part of that is, and then weave some application in through there. I'm not going to be doing that this time around. I want to give you a path forward of how we are going to arrive at this main idea that's on the screens here. We're going to look at this text in three different movements or three different sections within the passage. And then within each of those sections, we're going to do the necessary work of interpretation. Or if you want to use a fancy seminary term, we're going to do this thing called exegesis with one another. And what we're going to do in that is we're going to better be able to understand the passage and answer any questions that arise from that. And primarily what I want to do is I want to answer any questions that might arise from reading the text and and give some clarity and answers to those questions. Then at the end of all this interpretational work, at the end of our exegesis, what we're going to do is we're going to have three applicational questions asked of us. And hopefully, Lord willing, those will help you live out the text after we leave here this morning. So with that said, the three movements, the three sections within this text are this. We have a cry in verses 1 through 4, a conversation in verses 5 through 14, 
and then a conclusion in verses 15 and 17. Now, if you didn't get all that, that's okay. I'm going to repeat it. A cry in verses 1 through 4. That's where we're going to start. So, verses 1 through 4 happens. Mordecai hears of this plan of Haman to annihilate all the Jews that is set in motion via the edict of King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. This decree, this edict, it is immovable and set by order of the king. And naturally, when the decree reaches the city of Susa, where Mordecai lives, and it's also a region of this Persian empire where many Jews are inhabited, the whole city, as it says in chapter 3, is thrown into confusion. So naturally, the response to this decree, Mordecai goes into the middle of the city of Susa. He goes in with sackcloth and ashes as a sign of deep mourning. And from the middle of the city, he makes it through the city and goes up to the king's gate, but he cannot go any farther than the king's gate because the author tells us, he informs us and lets us know that no one is allowed to enter through the king's gate that is clothed in sackcloth. Now, it's not necessarily expressly told why nobody can go through the king's gate if they're dressed in sackcloth, but I have to imagine that given King Xerxes or Ahasuerus' proclivity at this point to outer beauty, I mean, think about all the hoops that he made these women jump through uh, in order for him to find a wife after Vashti. Given his proclivity for external beauty, it's more than likely because sackcloth is just unbecoming to him, and he doesn't want that within his palace. Another thing to note is that given the details of verse 3 of the larger scope of, of many Jews, wherever that decree was reached, of the great mourning of the Jews in all provinces in the response to this edict and to this decree, there is a strong likelihood that Mordecai is not alone in Susa whenever he goes up to the king's gate to cry aloud in verse 2. He is probably not by himself. Some commentators have estimated that there were potentially thousands of Jews with him mourning at that gate in sackcloth and in ash in the city of Susa. And naturally, this great crowd of mourners would have been really, really noticeable. I mean, think about if all of us at one point in time just raised up a cry, and not like an excited cry, but we all just wailed because we were so upset and so confused about what was going on. That would have been really noticeable, which makes sense, right? Why the young women and the eunuchs that served Esther told her about it and reported it to her. And this is likely, this loud wailing is likely why we find in verse 4 that Esther responds so unbelievably quickly to her uncle by attempting to give him normal clothes. One guy weeping at the king's gate, not that big of a deal. If I got up here and started crying in front of you, it'd it'd be weird, don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't be as noticeable as if all of us were crying about one particular thing together, right? That would be really, really noticeable. It would cause pandemonium, especially in front of the king's gate and for the king's court. Given all the details here in verses 1 through 4, there are really two questions I think that have arisen as we look at those details. The first question I want to ask, and and I hope to answer, is this. Why is Esther so distressed by this morning, and why does she give clothes to Mordecai, or tries to give clothes to Mordecai? One suggestion is perhaps she wants Mordecai to be allowed entrance into the king's gate. So give him normal clothes so he can plead the Jews' case to King Xerxes or to Ahasuerus. But in order for him to plead their case, what does he have to do? He needs to look proper. He needs to get out of that sackcloth and ashes in order to do that. 
given Mordecai's refusal of the clothes, uh, her distress and that quick response, that doesn't seem likely. The other suggestion is that perhaps Esther wanted to cover up this Jewish mourning by having Mordecai clothed first. If you couldn't tell already, Mordecai is a central figure within this whole book. And more than likely, he is a likely leader of many Jews within the city of Susa. But in order to cover up this mourning and to cover up this distress that's going on because of this mourning and this cry and this lament, Esther rushes to get him closed because I think she perhaps maybe thinks that if I get him closed, then everybody else will stop doing it and he'll return back to normal. Everything will be normal. But I think one of the things that we need to consider is why would Esther want to cover up this morning? Would it be potentially because she did not want to be revealed as Jewish and to be potentially identified with this people? At this point in the story, this is what the linchpin question is. Who really is Esther? What kind of person is she? What is her character like? If you think about it, in the first three chapters, she's kind of been just there, been told what to do, and just does things. She doesn't really even say a word until this chapter that we got in today. So one of the questions that's kind of holding the tension for us as we read through this passage is, what kind of person is she? What kind of character does she have? We already know about Mordecai, right? Mordecai is painted by the preceding story. He's flawed, certainly, but he is a proud Jew. And more than likely, as I stated earlier, he's a leader of the Jewish community there in Susa. Esther perhaps knew full well that if she could get her uncle covered back up and stopped crying, the other Jews would follow him. And that eventually her Jewish identity would be remained hidden. And then she would just kind of sweep everything under the rug, if you will. To be honest, the motive for her distress, it's not really identified. It's unknown. It could be that really she just wanted to help her uncle. I think that's, I think that's clear. They've had a great relationship up to this point, so maybe she just wanted to help him. As we get to this next section, though, it's as if this decree, it's, it's news to her as well. But I have to wonder, her distress in conjunction with her quick response to go get Mordecai clothes, I I think it does beg the question if Esther is really ashamed of her identity and the heritage that she has with the covenant people of God being a Jew. I think that we have to ask that question. I think that's a a very viable option. The second question I believe that this section shows us is, I think it needs to be asked, but do you guys notice that there's something missing in the response of the Jews to this decree? Have you guys noticed that? Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1. Mordecai tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and cried aloud, bitter cry. Okay? Verse 3. The other Jews, likely including Mordecai, mourn, fast, weep, lament, and and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but I want us to look at verse 16. Verse 16 really quickly. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Do you guys notice anything missing in the response of all the Jews within this passage? Do you notice the like major thing that often the people of God should and probably would do 
in a time of impending calamity. You guys see this? Not once, not a single time is prayer ever mentioned in this whole chapter. There's mourning, there's weeping, there's fasting, there's lamenting, there's all these different things, but not once is prayer ever mentioned. Why is this? Shouldn't prayer be the natural response of the people of God whenever they're in a situation like this? I mean, shouldn't we not eliminate any sort of acknowledgement to God or anything like that? I think the author knows exactly what he's doing. The author, I think, goes at length to not only mention God at all, but to eliminate any acknowledgement of the Lord by these characters, by these people that are in exile in Susa. Why would the author do this? Why would he go at such great lengths to not just eliminate God, but to eliminate any correspondence by God? I mean, we have chock-full passages where the author is crying out to God, but there seems to be no response by God. We have that in the psalm that we sang this morning, right? Why would he do this? I don't want to leave us on a cliffhanger, so I'm really sorry about this, but we're going to answer that question a little bit later in the sermon and in the story, okay? So bear with me. Let's move on to the next movement, the next section, which is a conversation in verses 5 through 14. So verses 5 through 14, this next section records the conversation and correspondence between Esther and Mordecai. Likely not wanting to be identified as Jewish, as she was instructed in chapter 2 by Mordecai, Mordecai said, hey, hide your Jewish identity. Esther uses one of the king's eunuchs, Hathak, that she can trust to communicate with Mordecai. Esther specifically wants to know what this is, what Mordecai is doing, and why he is doing this. What this is and why this is. So Hathak goes to Mordecai, and he tells, and Mordecai tells Hathak everything that's happened to him in chapter 3 in detail. Mordecai tells her of Haman's response to himself when he did not bow down to Haman in chapter 3. He tells him what Haman has plotted in the end goal in the accomplishment of trying to destroy all of the Jews and to annihilate all of them. And, and what Haman is willing to pay in light of that destruction as well. He gives her a copy of this decree that, so that she can see that the king's signet, his seal is on this so that it would be verifiable to her. And then he also commands her, in, in verse 8, if you can see this, verse 8, he commands her to explain it to her, and then he commands her, Mordecai commands Esther to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Esther is informed of all these things by Hathak, and Esther responds in verse 11 with this, all the king's servants and the people of the king's promises know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So given all that Mordecai just told her everything that's been going on, this impending doom and destruction that's getting ready to happen for all of the Jewish people, Esther responds with that in verse 11. I think her response is quite interesting, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But Hathak, poor guy, he's basically acting as a courier between Mordecai and Esther, going back and forth, back and forth. So Hathak tells Mordecai what Esther said to him, 
And Mordecai replies to Esther through Hathak with these famous words in verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's a lot of responses going on here. And I want us to critically look at a few things within this response of both Esther and Mordecai. I think the first thing that we should notice, as I alluded to earlier, is Esther's curious response. It's curious, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, we've clearly seen up to this point, what is the response of many of the Jews once they hear about this decree? It's mourning, it's weeping, it's lamenting, it's putting on sackcloth and ashes. Esther, she doesn't do any of those things. Now, maybe in an effort to continue to hide her identity as she was instructed, she does not respond like the other Jews. And I think that would be understandable. However, some other commentators, and I think this is somewhat compelling, they argue that perhaps she has been so ingrained into the life of being this wife of this Persian king and being this Persian queen herself that she herself is ultimately having an identity crisis. And she's having to make the conscious decision of whether or not she is really a part of this king's court or a part of the people of God. I think this is a really, really compelling argument for why Esther responds the way that she does, especially given how she tells Mordecai she can only go to the king if he requests her. While this standard, while this protocol for Esther to be able to go to the king only if he requests her, that is true. There's historical documentation that shows that this is a practice of the Persians at this time, that they can only go to the king if they are requested. However, there's also historical documentation within Persian history as well that people can request to go to the king. They can ask one of the king's eunuchs, one of his representatives, to ask them on behalf if they can grant an audience with the king. The fact that she doesn't even mention or suggest being able to do so, I believe is quite telling. I'm not necessarily saying that she's disavowing her Jewish identity and and she's acting as an apostate. I'm not saying that at all, okay? Likely, I think what's true here and why her response is as such is because she's scared. I think if any of us were in the same kind of situation that she was in or any sort of predicament like that, where we were told you need to hide the fact that you need to be a Christian and all Christians are going to die, but you've been told to hide the fact that you're a Christian, I think you'd be really scared, right? And I think we can sympathize with her in this way. And I think Mordecai knows that Esther is scared. I think that's why he replies to her in the way that he does in verses 13 and 14. And I want us to look really quickly at that response of Mordecai in verses 13 and 14. First, some commentators have suggested in verses 13 and 14 that Mordecai is giving a veiled threat to Esther when he says things like, and now I'm going to read it in a different tone than how I have been read it. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than all the other Jews. Or perhaps he's saying it like this. For if you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. That's one way. People say that 
Mordecai is responding to her with this kind of veiled threat. I think that interpretation of those verses, I think it's dubious at best, and it makes Esther look like a passive voice in the rest of the story, like she's just some sort of pawn for Mordecai. But we're going to find out in the next few weeks that Esther is really not that way at all. I do not believe that telling a woman in general within this passage, who's also probably likely very, very scared, and telling her, if you don't do exactly what I say, you're going to die. I don't think that's going to be helpful to a woman that's already scared and fearing for her life. I don't think it's going to produce the ends that Mordecai is wanting for her to go on behalf of her people. Telling a scared person threats probably is not going to be helpful. Likely, I, I believe this is what Mordecai is saying, and let me put this in Tanner's standard version here. Because you are Jewish, that reality will be found out, and you will likely die like the rest of your Jewish brethren. Even if you keep silent now and don't speak on behalf of us dying, will still likely be the outcome. Even if you keep silent, dying will probably be the outcome. However, if you do not keep silent, yes, you might die at the hand of the king. But we've already established that dying is already the likely outcome anyway. But if you speak to the king, it is better to act and die than to not act at all and die. Perhaps, Esther, the purpose of your life, all of the beautifying, all of the cosmetics, all of the special dieting, all of the tragedy and sorrow that you have had to face, perhaps you were made for such a moment like this. Perhaps you were purposed for a time such as this. I think that would be a little bit more encouraging to accomplish the ends instead of a veiled threat, right? The second issue in this response that we see in Mordecai is, what does Mordecai mean whenever he says, for if you keep silent at this time, let me find this verse here, for if you keep silent at this time, verse 14, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. What does Mordecai mean by that? Is, is Mordecai simply saying, if you do not speak, someone else will rise? I don't think this seems likely given the limited number of characters that we've been introduced here. I mean, we have basically four main characters. It's Xerxes, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. We haven't been introduced to anybody at this point that's going to rise up and take care of the Jewish people by delivering them. I think at this point we would have known that person by now. Is he saying maybe perhaps like we read in the story of Exodus that God himself is going to be risen up and he's going to be the one that actually stops this decree and saves all the Jews and delivers them? I think given the fact that the author makes no mention of God and, and literally just does this over and over again, he doesn't want God involved in the story at all, at least the mention of God in the story at all, I don't think that's a likely interpretation as well. I think the right interpretation would be is this, is that Mordecai believes that deliverance is certain for the Jewish people. He knows in past history, because of the promises of God, that deliverance will rise. He's not really sure how or who, but it's going to happen. It seems that Mordecai just simply hopes that this deliverance will happen. It doesn't mean that he has all the strategy, all the people figured out about how that's going to happen. I think he just hopes Given the history of my, our people, deliverance is going to rise from some other place. 
But, again, that's met with the tension of these words. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, yes, Esther, I believe that given the history of our people, that deliverance will rise from somewhere else. But Esther, what if maybe perhaps you are that person that can be used for the deliverance of your people? I think this then places the burden for action or inaction upon Esther. And I, I, I think without signing God at all in the passage, he's attempting to motivate Esther to realize that this is her ultimate life purpose. Will you respond, Esther? So how does she respond? Let's read verses 15 through 17 real quickly. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. As we just read in these verses, it seems like in a moment, Esther changes from being a passive character within this story to one of great bravery. Truth be told, we don't know exactly what causes her to change her mind. Perhaps Mordecai is just like one of the best speech givers on the planet, and she heard that message from Hathak, perhaps you were made for such a time as this, and she said, this is my time. Like maybe that was her, I don't know. Perhaps it was the weight of the moment finally coming into view for her. Maybe as evidenced by her last statement, she knows that she's just going to die, and so she's just fixed, I'm going to die. And so I'm just going to do whatever the best thing is in light of this impending death. Whatever it was in this response, I think that we can begin the story, we can feel it beginning to shift from one of doom to hope. And, and we see this by, instead of receiving commands from Mordecai, guess who's giving res- commands now? Esther commands and tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa and to fast for her on, for three days. And it's not just the Jews. I mean, you can tell that Esther's taking this really seriously. It's not just that her Jews, uh, her Jewish friends, will be uh, fasting, but it's also the young women that are serving her. No food, no drink for three days for the express purpose for the commitment to go to the king without an invitation. Plead on my behalf by fasting. Again, no prayers mentioned. Go on my behalf in fasting so that I might go to the king even though it's against the law. This would be so, so significant for Esther because ultimately what she would be doing is not only breaking the law, but she herself would finally identify herself with the covenant people of God. In her going to the king without invitation, she would be revealing that she herself is a Jew. And as we read in chapter 3, there is a death sentence for that reality. You, if a Jew, will die because of this decree by the very king that she has to go to. Can you feel the tension of this moment for Esther? Some readers may read the end of verse 16, if I perish, I perish, as some sort of defeated and exhausted statement, but I think I want to consider a couple of things in light of that to help us see that she's not just saying, well, if I die, I die. That's not what she's saying at all. First, I think we should see that Esther finally identifies with the covenant people of God. 
Up to this point, her identity, it's been hidden. And it's been hidden on purpose. And as we read in the last section, she does not necessarily seem eager to change that reality, to change the fact that she identifies with the people of God. But now, in an unbelievable statement of bravery, she identifies herself within this community by doing what? By calling for a fast on her behalf and that she and her young women will also fast as well. I want to suggest that the light bulb comes on for Esther because of this second observation that we find in her response, which is this. Why is there still no prayer mentioned? Are you guys frustrated by this? Why is there no prayer at all mentioned in this? One commentator said on this point, it's almost frustrating how much it seems that God is just written off in this whole story. And it's especially true here in this moment. If we think about at any point in this whole book, whenever God should show up, or like the mention of his name, or prayer, or something that's really spiritual should show up, it should be at this point. But nothing, just radio silence. But what I want to suggest is that the author knows exactly what he's doing, as I proposed at the beginning. And I want to show you why. So if you can, turn with me to Joel chapter 2. You're going to want to keep your finger in Esther, but turn with me to Joel chapter 2, which is on page 761 in those blue pew Bibles. Joel chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'll give you just very brief background. In this prophetic book, Joel the prophet, not Joel our pastor, Joel the prophet is warning the readers of this, in this letter of this event in history called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord was a, a time of, of, of great anticipation by the people of God, and particularly of the Israelites, because they believed that's when God, on this day of the Lord, that's when God would judge the nations and restore Israel to her former glory. Yet, as Joel says, God would punish not only those nations who were against the people of God, but also unfaithful Israel as well. And in the middle of this book, as God is speaking through Joel, God speaks on about this terrible day, He says, starting in Joel 2, starting in verse 12, he says this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Do you guys notice that? Joel says, return with me, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Esther 4.3. You're going to want to turn back there. Esther 4.3. And in every province, wherever the king's man and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Joel 2.14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Esther 4.14. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What I want to suggest is that the reality of what this decree declares, which is to destroy all of the Jews, I believe that it might have been seen as a potential sign as the day of the Lord to all of the Jews there in that region. The theologian John Calvin actually commented on his Institutes of Christian Religion whenever he's talking about the act of fasting. John Calvin believes that this is actually the reason why they are fasting. 
because they believe that this day of the Lord is happening and they want to make God relent because he's gracious, abounding in steadfast love. This decree and the impending doom of the day of the Lord not only hit Mordecai and the Jewish community there in Susa, but what I want to suggest, I think it hit Esther as well. So what does Esther do in light of this potential day of the Lord? She joins in with Israel. She joins in with the Jews to repent by fasting, by returning to the Lord. She trusts and obeys God. I believe that Esther understood what I proposed at the beginning of this sermon. Trusting in God and obedience to him is always rooted in the purpose of God's glory. While God is never mentioned, Esther could know that the purposes of God might be working out within this time. And she trusts and obeys God in light of that. She trusts him by saying, if I die, I'll go to the king and act. She obeys him by knowing God's word in Joel chapter 2 and saying, I will fast, I will mourn, I will weep, perhaps for the sake that God may relent from this disaster. Esther could trust in God, whether it was in life or in death, that her obedience would glorify God. And God's glory, it mattered significantly more. God's glory mattered significantly more than the glory of the temporary crown that she was wearing. It was worth losing her life over. God's glory was worth losing her life over. So in light of us walking through this passage and looking at all these different things, I want to ask us three applicational questions. And I would just suggest perhaps maybe after the service today, around the lunch table, wherever that may be, or during your life groups this week, I would use these questions as discussion points for your time. My first question is, uh, which I want to specifically ask to our friends here who may not consider themselves Christian, I want to ask you this first question. Do you see the subliminal message? Do you see the subliminal message? Friend, what do you make of an event in a story like this that we just read? I'm sure in the hands of many modern readers, this author of Esther would have been would have been considered agnostic at best. No mention of God, but maybe there's a hint of God uh, in their motives. Who knows? They seemingly write God out of the whole picture. But, friend, do you see the subliminal message within the story of Esther? Especially as I turn to Joel chapter 2 and we looked at Esther 4 here, there are too many so-called coincidences in this story for you or I to ignore. The author and me are trying to convince you here this morning and are trying to tell you that there is a God in the universe who acts in his creation and he directs that creation to fulfill his purposes. I want to say that again. There is a God who acts in his creation, directs that creation for the purpose of his own glory. This idea is called providence. It's not simply because Queen Vashti made Xerxes really upset that Esther becomes queen. That's not simply that. It's not only Haman's seeming hatred of the Jews that this decree is sent out. God works through events and people to to accomplish his purpose. Friend, you might be here this morning, and at a surface level, you might be here this morning because a friend invited you or 
kids or teenagers, you might be here because your parents dragged you here and you don't want to be here this morning. But I want you to think with me just a little bit deeper, perhaps for a moment. Perhaps God orchestrated the things in your life to bring you to this moment so that you might trust in God and that you may return to him and you may repent. Perhaps you were made for such a time as this. God works like this all of the time. He takes seemingly meaningless things and as as you dig a little bit deeper, you see his orchestration and his purposes through those things. I mean, he worked this way through Jesus, right? Jesus, God the Son, would die at the hands of angry men who didn't like what he taught. That's what it was at a surface level. They didn't like what he taught. He claimed himself to be God. I don't like that. I'm going to kill you. So that's what they did. They, they nailed him to a Roman cross. But God, if we look at it at a deeper level, God, because of his providence and because of his sovereign power, would use this death of Jesus on this Roman cross to accomplish the redemption and the forgiveness and the rescue of sinners just like you and me. Friend, perhaps you were made for such a time as this to hear that message and to believe it. If that might be you this morning and you believe you see God's providence, his purpose for you in your life to come to him in repentance and faith, if that's you this morning, I'm going to be out that door over there by that exit door. Come and find me. I would love to talk to you more. The second question I have for all of us is this. How is your trust in God displayed? Is it displayed by obedience? For many of us as Christians, it's probably really disarming to read that the main character in the story of Esther was perhaps not perfect, and maybe even a little bit like us, maybe a little hesitant to obey, maybe a little confused, perhaps even scared to obey. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter if your trust in God is really strong or it's painfully weak. All God asks of you is for you to trust in him, to trust in him more and to obey him in light of that trust. This trusting obedience functions as the sign of the transformative work that goes on in our hearts whenever God saves us from darkness and into light. Do we get this trusting obedience done? Do we get this right all the time? Of course not. I failed at it this week. But friend, you can go down the list of people in the Bible and find misstep after misstep, mistake after mistake, and yet God continues to help them trust and to obey him more and more. Brothers and sisters, we can take heart that our trusting obedience in the Lord, however great or small, whether it's to save a whole people or maybe it's just you not getting mad at the person that cut you off in traffic, whatever that obedience might look like for you, perhaps it is being used for his glory It can be used for his glory as long as you continue to trust and obey him, no matter how big or how small. My final question in light of that is what motivates your decisions? What motivates your decisions, Christian? Not just simply on big decisions like Esther had, like am I going to save all these people or not? I'm sure all of us are faced with questions like that every day, right? No, not big decisions like where should I go to college or who will I marry or or. Should I buy this house or not? Or what kind of school do I send my kids to? Or how do I take care of my aging parents? That's not what I'm asking here. How do you make decisions for the seemingly small, everyday, normal decisions that are in your life? Perhaps the ones that you unconsciously make. 
largely, in this story, we, we find no reason or no explicit reason for why Esther ends up deciding to go before the king. If it's out of fear of death, I would have to think that she would have not acted at all. I don't know about you guys, but there's this thing called fight or flight, and I'm definitely a flight. Uh, if she was scared of dying uh, and didn't want to go before the king, I don't think it was out of fear of death that she went up to him. I think she would have just stayed in her bedchambers and been okay dying that way instead of at the hand of the king. That's just my suggestion. If she decided to go before the king because that's what good Jewish people do and, and she wanted to be a good Jewish person, that would have been just merely out of mere duty and, and truthfully not any better than the first option. But if she decided to go before King Xerxes because she knew that glorifying God, the king of all kings, was more important and would give more reward than dishonoring an earthly king, and if that was a purpose in her life, then I must believe that she lived with more freedom and with more joy than she had at any point up to her life. Friends, why do we make the decisions that we make? What motivates those decisions? Do you make decisions with God's glory in mind? If you have been saved by God, then he has saved you so that you might exist, that you might live for the purpose of glorifying him. God in his great glory and happiness has saved you so that you might find freedom in Jesus' name. And in that freedom, and with that inexpressible joy of knowing that you are forgiven, you now exist for the purpose, for the sole being of making God's glory known. That is why you exist, Christian. So do you make decisions in light of spreading that glory? So, when you're deciding after service where you're going to go to lunch, Friend, go where God might be most glorified. When you're trying to determine what things you'll commit to this week, whether it's events or school events or whatever, do the things that God's glory will shine in. When you decide whether to wash your hair or shave your face or do whatever, do the one that God's going to be most glorified in. Have him at the forefront of your mind consciously whenever you make these seemingly small, unconscious decisions. Yes, some of us might have moments that are significant in our lives, like Esther. Perhaps you will be confronted in your workplace about your faith, where maybe you need to deny your faith or, or hold fast to it. Perhaps, kid at school, you're scared of proclaiming Christ because perhaps you're nervous that somebody might make fun of you. I understand. I understand you're scared. Esther was the same way. But I want you to remember Remember God's glory. It outweighs all those other things. And I pray in those moments, we would choose God's glory, whether it's to shave my mustache or not, or to hold our faith up high. Friends, if we do not conscientiously decide every day in seemingly small ways to glorify God, then those bigger, larger decisions about do I glorify God or not? Those are going to become all the more difficult. What motivates your decisions? I pray, as you have been purposed for such a time as this, it would be to glorify God. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you because you are glorious. You are the one that's deserving of all praise. And God, you are glorious because you are sovereign. You are powerful. You work in seemingly insignificant and small things for your plans to prosper and to work out. 
So God, we pray that this week we might glorify you, that we might make you shine in our decisions, that we would remember, whether in darkness, whether in light, whether in suffering, whether in joy, we would remember that you are sovereign over us.